Today on the podcast, we're talking about branding, specifically the big law law firm that basically hitches brand to the Trump administration's star. How's that going for now? We hear from the author of a book that tries to answer that very question. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. So in early 2017, a few weeks after the Trump inauguration, we did a podcast about the law firm Jones Day. Founded in 1893, Jones Day was one of the first firms to get really huge back in the 70s and 80s. It's now perennially in the top 20 of all U.S. law firms by gross revenue. And by 2017, it was also known as the go-to law firm for the Trump campaign, which by then, of course, had morphed into the Trump administration. In our podcast, host Josh Block asked Above the Law's David Latt about whether it was a good idea for Jones Day to tie itself so closely to one of the most divisive presidents in U.S. history. Okay, but but given that this administration is an administration uh, not like any other, is there reputational risk? Is there any damage that can be done to this firm? For me, I think a lot of the challenge for Jones Day from this might come from a recruiting perspective. Many young people, especially the types of people who go to law schools and especially the types of people who go to elite law schools, are not necessarily in step with this administration. And so some of them might have pause before going to work for a law firm that is so visibly associated with the president. So that was 2017. After that, there was a revolving door. Jones Day partners went on to staff the Trump administration, and administration alums went back to become very well-compensated Jones Dayers. And according to today's guest, this was no accident. David Enrich is an editor at the New York Times and the author of Servants of the Damned, an investigation of the Trump world's relationship with big law and specifically with Jones Day. The firm is no stranger to hot-button clients, having rep cigarette maker R.J. Reynolds and opioid maker Purdue Pharma. But Enrich says what allowed Jones Day to develop such a close relationship with a figure as controversial as Trump was the firm's unique setup in which the managing partner has almost dictatorial control over all of his business decisions. And that managing partner's name is Steve Brogan. So the firm up until 2003 had had six managing partners and managing partners at Jones Day wield basically unfettered power. And there is very little that they cannot do. And it ranges from making hiring and firing decisions to even choosing the person who will replace him as managing partner. So the seventh managing partner took charge in 2003. His name was Steve Brogan, and he is still the managing partner today, nearly 20 years later. And Brogan is, I mean, he's a fascinating character and is a little sphinx-like. And he has, as far as I can tell, only granted one interview in his history as managing partner, which is pretty extraordinary. He's the son of a New York City cop uh, and was, you know, born and raised in the New York City area. And he, he once told a reporter that he, one of the things he remembered was his, his dad's going away party and a sergeant came up to him and said, your dad just reeks of manhood. And so that has all that really helped me think about who Brogan was. And he has worked his entire career, with the exception of a couple of years in the Reagan administration Justice Department, his entire career has been at Jones Day. Reeks of manhood. <laughs> Don't you love that? Odd turn of, it's makes me think that he, you know, needed to change deodorants or something. Well, anyway, <laughs> uh, that's neither here nor there. But I want to focus on Brogan specifically because I think that uh, it sounds like Jones Day's structure is very unique in that most law firms don't have 
centralized power the way that Jones Day does. In most law firms, the managing partner doesn't have as much authority to do whatever he or she wants, like in Jones Day. Why is that? Well, it's a historical decision that they made going back to the firm's very first managing partner. And the theory was that, and I think there's a lot of truth to this, by the way, and the theory was that the consensus-driven kind of committee-based model that exists at most other, almost all other big law firms, and frankly, almost all other big organizations, is a recipe for inefficiency, and it uh, it kind of breeds politicking and things like that. Whereas if you just have all the power vested in a single person, yes, that person is a bit of an autocrat potentially and is, you know, kind of a dictator almost by definition. But there is no issue with not making fast decisions, right? As long as you have someone who is self-confident and decisive in that seat, they can very quickly cut through the nonsense that might slow down decision-making at other firms. And so and that manifested itself at Jones Day in a couple of in many ways, actually, but two of the most important are that it allowed the firm very quickly to expand first uh, nationally and then internationally in a way that most other law firms at the time were not willing to take that risk. And the other issue is just in terms of client selection. I mean, there is, at the end of the day, the Jones Day managing partner has the final word, period, on whether to represent a client. And those clients, that doesn't mean he gets involved in every single decision, but ultimately, if there's a dispute among people, there's no question about who will make that decision. And so that means if there's a, you know, a fight within the firm about whether we should be representing big tobacco or a gun company or something like that, that is not something that's going to get voted on. That's something that will, at the end of the day, be decided by one person and one person alone. And so for better and for worse, probably, and you can, depending on your perspective, that is, it's a model that has really set Jones Day apart and left it in a position where it is much more willing to represent companies that, and represent them in certain ways that a lot of its competitors these days just can't stomach. Well, uh, speaking of that, you know, it seems like in terms of client selection, a lot of the clients that Jones Day selected starting around 2015 had ties to Donald Trump. And then, you know, that sort of accelerated after he became president. Um, I get the sense that, you know, this is in line with Stephen Brogan's sort of worldview, that he's a very conservative person. Um, you know, I don't want you to sort of summarize your entire book because you did some amazing, extensive reporting here. But can you just, like, briefly talk about all the ties between Jones Day and the Trump administration? It sounds like it was a real revolving door here. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like the revolving door on steroids, to mix metaphors. Uh, uh, basically, Jones Day, and they had been veering into Republican politics prior to the arrival of Trump. But in, in 2014, the firm made the decision to get into the political law business. That was something they did not have a practice in. And they hired a, a few hotshot Republicans from Patton Boggs, actually. Uh, including Don McGahn and Ben Ginsburg, who are kind of household names, I think, for most people who follow this stuff. And uh, the first client that McGahn picked up, or one of the first clients he picked up upon arriving at Jones Day was the Trump campaign, which was early 2015, and a time when no one was taking Trump that seriously. And so they kind of got on the ground floor of that movement. And it meant that by the time Trump won the election in 2016, McGahn had been, you know, he'd been traveling the country with Trump. He had been, he was there and I think played an instrumental role in some of the kind of seminal decisions of the Trump candidacy. Like, for example, uh, 
publicly announcing this list from which Trump would choose Supreme Court justices. And so so McGahn gets named as Trump's white, first White House counsel. He then brings into the White House with him probably eight or 10 other Jones Day lawyers, all of them members of the Federalist Society. And their job is, among other things, to and they are in charge unilaterally of selecting the not just the Supreme Court justices, but also federal judges up and down the bench who that the White House will nominate. And then it goes, I mean, it goes much beyond that, ultimately. And the, at the Justice Department, Noel Francisco, a Jones Day partner, was named uh, Solicitor General. You had a bunch of Deputy Attorney Generals and Associate or Assistant Attorney Generals who came from Jones Day and would return to Jones Day. You had uh, commissioners at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, at the Commerce Department. You had a, a number of Jones Day lawyers who ultimately got nominated to become federal judges, so lifetime appointments. Well, so I want to play devil's advocate here a little bit and sort of push back just a little bit on the thesis of, of your book here. Doesn't this sort of always happen? Aren't there, you know, there's Republican law firms and there are Democratic law firms, and we all know who they are. And, you know, whenever a new administration comes in, they look to these law firms to staff these positions. How is this different from just sort of what's been happening in D.C.? since sort of time immemorial, the the law firm administration pipeline? Well, I have two main answers to that. The first is that it's not that different in a lot of ways, right? The, my point in focusing on Jones Day in this book was not to pick on Jones Day as uniquely terrible or uniquely anything, right? Jones Day in a lot of ways is emblematic of this transformation of the legal profession into the legal industry over the past several decades. And so you're right, that does happen a lot. And I think that that is something that, you know, you can have reasonable people can disagree about where you draw the lines of appropriateness in terms of the revolving door. I would argue that a lot of times that line of appropriateness gets crossed. And I think the book details a bunch of examples of that, I think. Uh, but the second kind of main answer to that is that, yes, it is very normal for big for both Republican and Democratic administrations to draw senior officials from big corporate law firms. The transfer of power, though, and talent from Jones Day into the Trump administration, I think, was extraordinary. I don't I do not think there is an example anyone can find because I don't think it's happened where you have dozens of people not just going into the administration, but going into the administration at very senior levels. And it's not just the White House Counsel's Office. It's top of the Justice Department, other federal agencies. And so I think that there certainly a lot of People on both the left and the right say this is the scale of this was unprecedented. Well, speaking of that, I want to get into how this affected and continues to affect the business of Jones Day, because, you know, during the Trump administration, this is pretty good for business. I, I gather that, you know, you had, uh, you know, if you were a corporate client and you had an issue before the federal government, Jones Day was a pretty good law firm to go to because you knew that they had a lot of connections within the federal government. It sounds like that started to change in mid to late 2020 in the lead up to the 2020 elections and certainly after the 2020 elections in that, you know, the the firm started to work on election issues that were very, very controversial and kind of, it sounds like based on your reporting, created a little mini mutiny within Jones Day. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So in terms of whether this has been good or bad for business, I think it's really hard to figure that out. I mean, there is an answer to that question, but Jones Day, you know, in 
it's just a very secretive place. And so I do not, unfortunately, have access to all of their finances. But the, I, I think it was a double-edged sword, really. And there, you're right that there were, I think, clients, uh, Walmart is one that really jumps to mind, where, you know, they had the fact that Jones Day had access to all of these people at top levels in the government. I don't know if that was by whether that attracted Walmart to Jones Day, but it certainly worked to their benefit. And on the other hand, I think there is a degree, I know that there have been some corporate clients that have dropped Jones Day or at least reduced the amount of work they're throwing Jones Day because of the what they perceive as the toxicity of the Trump work. And it's certainly in terms of recruiting new lawyers, I think it has made, it, it's probably become a bit more challenging. There are certainly some campus groups uh, that have been very noisy and encouraging students or discouraging students from interviewing at Jones Day or taking jobs at Jones Day. And, but this mutiny that occurred, I, th- I think mutiny is a reasonably good word. I mean, it's, um, I mean, basically in the run-up to the 2020 election, as Trump's rhetoric was getting more and more incendiary and kind of detached from reality, there were a bunch of people, both Republicans and Democrats, at senior levels inside Jones Day who were warning, including warning the firm's managing partner, Steve Brogan, about the risks of being associated with the Trump campaign, because Jones Day was the primary outside law firm for Trump 2020, as well as Trump 2016. And those concerns, I mean, from what I've been able to glean, Brogan agreed with some of those concerns, but that did not change. They continued to represent the the Trump campaign. And right before the election in in Pennsylvania, which was the key battleground state, Jones Day was involved in litigation that without going into all of the mind-numbing details. And the bottom line was that it was going to make it harder for absentee and mail-in ballots to count. And with the clear knowledge that everyone had that those ballots were likely to overwhelmingly skew Democratic. And so that litigation, and again, they were not involved in any of the like crazed, like Sidney Powell uh, election nonsense after the election, but they were involved in this very important Pennsylvania litigation. And it, that involvement was just radioactive to a lot of the firm's lawyers. And again, it's not just millennials whining. This was people at senior levels who had a ton of experience who were very well-regarded partners at the firm. Um, and and this really erupted, I think, most vividly in a couple of conference calls that the, the, the head of the D.C. office of the firm at the time, Kevin Orr, who happens to be uh, one of the firm's only kind of senior Democrats, uh, he held a couple of conference calls trying to kind of calm the waters, and boy, it did not calm the waters. I mean, people were shouting, threatening to quit, um, and a couple of associates who were a very well-regarded associate who had clerked for Supreme Court justices before arriving at Jones Day ended up writing basically an open letter saying that in condemning Jones Day for, you know, they said basically undermining democracy. And this conference call with Kevin Orr, this was in late, 2020. So this is a couple of weeks after the 2020 election. So probably right. mid to late November of 2020. Well, the, the reason why I want to get the timeline down here is because so that was in mid November of 2020. I'm guess I'm wondering what happened after January 6th. I wonder if that made even the most senior people who were behind the Trump administration, Brogan himself you know, stop and 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 think, what have we done? You know, maybe this is the time to, to stop. I think, I, first of all, I don't know is the short answer. Um, the longer answer is that I think there's probably been a lot of that soul searching at not only John Day, but any other company or organization that had thrown its weight behind Trump, obviously not doing it to 
with the anticipating January 6th, but realizing after the fact that they had in some ways set the stage for it just by enabling Trump and helping get him elected. And the interesting thing, though, is, I mean, I've spent a lot of time obviously interviewing lawyers on a confidential basis, but I mean, Toward the end of this project, I spent a ton of time in going back and forth with a bunch of lawyers, including very senior lawyers at the firm, on the record and talking to them about this particular issue. And and this is well after January 6th. And to the extent that any of them had at that point developed concerns or uh, qualms about the work they had done for the Trump campaigns or for the Trump administration – they certainly were not acknowledging any of that. I mean, every, to a person, every person who spoke to me on the record, basically authorized by Jones Day's leadership to speak to me, they all defended the work. I mean, none of them were endorsing January 6th, to be clear, or, or the crazy election denial lawsuits, but all of them, to a man and woman, were steadfast in their defense of everything they'd done. There was not a hint of remorse or even self-doubt. And to me, that's just very characteristic of the culture that Brogan, whose father reeked of manhood, uh, has created at the firm, where there is, you kind of go in strong, you stick to your guns no matter what, and you certainly don't back down because a bunch of reporters or quote-unquote liberals are criticizing what you've done. So to finish, though, I want to talk about the business of Jones Day because it is a business. Um, It's a very, very big business. You talked about recruiting. You talked about retention. Those, uh, it sounds like, are becoming issues for Jones Day as a result of the stances they've taken. I'm just wondering, you know, if it can attract new clients the way that it did back when it was the Trump administration was in office because – you know, one of the, it sounds like the key selling points for Jones Day was that it had all these connections to the Trump administration. That's useless now. The Biden administration is in office, and I can't imagine that they have a ton of access to that. Is that a, uh, one of the risks of doubling down so hard on one side of the aisle that when the administration changes, you're sort of left out in the lurch? Yeah, I mean, I think that is a risk. I uh, and But I think the counter argument I guess I would make, and to be clear, I'm not saying this in defense or in apology of Jones Day, but Jones Day's reputation is so much more than the work that they've done and the access they had in the Trump administration. And this is a law firm, and this is what the bulk of the book focuses on, is not the Trump stuff. It's that they are one of the most aggressive corporate litigation firms in the world. And they stop at nothing to help their clients. And then sometimes involves crossing ethical lines or allegedly legal lines. And and they're extremely good at what they do. And I think to me that the takeaway here is that most, I think there will be some clients and certainly some potential employees who will hesitate to work with Jones Day in any form and probably will not work with Jones Day. But I think there are a lot of other clients that are probably, you know, eager for this no-holds-barred kind of smash-mouth defense that Jones Day is better at providing than just about anyone else. And to me, that's the interesting kind of ethical question here is whether, and this is a, Jones Day kind of epitomizes this transformation of big law from something that was a profession governed by a lot of very clear ethical and moral values into something where winning is done at virtually any cost. And, you know, Jones Day's work whether it's for RJR or Purdue Pharma or Smith & Wesson or the Trump administration, it all embodies that, right? They they do not stop and they don't really care what the world thinks of what they do. Do you think that 
that Stephen Brogan kind of calculated that and thought about that. Well, first off, as you mentioned, you know, that seems like that's kind of his mentality, which is that, like, you know, do what you want to do. And if people complain, who cares? Do you think that he kind of calculated that, that, you know, clients will may feel squeamish about the political work that we do, but that will be overcome by the fact that they want to win their case and we will win their case for them? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I don't, Brogan is one of the only people, by the way, who just refused to engage with me at all. Um, so I have not spoken to Brogan and which I find frustrating. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that that is kind of their calling card. And I think a lot of people probably in the big law industry would say, well, that's what good lawyers do. And they represent people or institutions that make society squeamish and, you know, everyone's entitled to a legal defense. And to me, the question, the interesting question that I've really tried to dig into in this book is where do you draw that line? Because I mean, some of the work that they have done for clients, you know, I'm not, these aren't my words, but in the words of federal judges or federal prosecutors or federal regulators who have punished the firm or tried to punish the firm, they have definitely crossed the line in doing some of that work. And it's created the, the work that firms like Jones Day and others have done has created this just huge imbalance in the justice system in the United States. All right. Well, that was David Enrich talking about uh, Jones Day and uh, Stephen Brogan. If you're listening, give uh, David a call. Give me a call. Uh, give give someone a call. Do an interview. Uh, we really want to hear from you. David, thank you so much uh, for talking. This was fascinating. My pleasure. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Andrew Satter. And our executive producer is Josh Block. Reach out to us on Twitter if you have anything on your mind. We use the handle at BLaw. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you soon. Taxes and accounting are complicated, but finding a good tax podcast shouldn't be. Listen to Talking Tax, the podcast that breaks down all of these issues on a weekly basis. Every Thursday, Talking Tax will explain the latest issues for you, from corporate filings to diversity within the profession, and even the latest on the burgeoning cannabis industry. Download and subscribe to Bloomberg Tax's Talking Tax wherever you get your podcasts.